Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kosesanov. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to have as my guest, Gillian Lavender. Gillian Lavender has been teaching people to meditate since 2003. She co-directs the London Meditation Center and the New York Meditation Center with her partner, Michael Miller, from their base in London. Through teaching Vedic meditation, the world's most ancient form of this art, Gillian has helped thousands of people across the globe to transform their lives. Originally from New Zealand, Gillian held senior business roles in Sydney, Paris, and New York. And during this demanding time leading global publishing companies, she learned Vedic meditation. The improvements to her life were immediate. Her stress levels began to dissolve and the fatigue began to subside. And when life brought her to London, Gillian took some time to review where she was with everything. She quit the big job, headed for the U.S. and then to India, where she trained with her teacher, the world-renowned Tom Knowles, to become a meditation teacher. So, Gillian, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me today about this super important subject, meditation. Thank you, Tatiana. It's lovely to be with you. So your story is very similar to so many, which is, you know, at the top of your game, in the middle of the throng, all of a sudden wake up one day and go, oh, I can't take this. This is not the way life is supposed to be. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey to discovering meditation? Yes, well, we're going back. The journey goes back a while, a ways. We, it was about 23 years ago that uh, I learned to meditate and that happened in Sydney, Australia, where I was based, uh, and I was working in business, as you said, and spending my, a lot of my time on a plane, um, which was very tiring. And I was, uh, feeling a little bit overwhelmed with everything that I had on my plate. And, uh, I didn't know anything about meditation. I hadn't come from that kind of a background, um, I hadn't really been involved that much with yoga or anything. And and at that stage, you know, 23 years ago, it was still a little bit out there. It's much more mainstream now. And so uh, I heard about meditation through a friend of mine. And uh, it was actually his father who was someone who'd had a lifetime of issues with sleeping. And he was an insomniac and, and he had tried so many different things and nothing had really worked sustainably. And then he learned Vedic meditation and within days, weeks, he was sleeping and I was tired as I, you know, as I witnessed with so many of my students, everybody is leading very demanding lives. And I think because I was flying so much as well, it was adding to it. So I thought, well, I need to go and check this out. And, uh, I went along to an introductory talk and I met my soon to be teacher and, he looked normal and the other people in the room looked normal because I'd had a few kind of preconceived ideas. You know, I thought, gosh, it's just going to be a bit sort of ooby gooby or, you know, brown rice and sandals or, you know, <laughs> what is this going to be about? I, I knew nothing. And what was very reassuring for me was that there was so much science behind this. You know, this is ancient. This is thousands of years old and yet it's extensively researched. And so I, I just had a feeling, you know, I thought, right, I'm going to do this. And, um, jumped in, took the course and started to notice changes very, very quickly. And the things that I noticed were very much around my energy levels. I, I had been sleeping okay, but what had happened for me was that I would wake up feeling tired. Even after a so-called good night's sleep, 
I'd, I'd wake up and I just want to push that snooze button and I did not want to get out of bed. So once I was meditating, I had energy. I was waking up, you know, feeling revitalized, getting out of bed, doing my meditation. That energy was sustaining itself through the day. I didn't have that sort of afternoon dip where, you know, I had previously been grabbing some caffeine or some sugar or something to prop me up. Um, I felt less anxious. That was a big thing. I had been feeling pretty overwhelmed by everything that I had on my plate. And it wasn't like everything changed as soon as I learned to meditate. I still had a lot going on in my life. However, my response to those demands shifted and I didn't feel like I was constantly scrambling and sort of on the back foot. And that was huge for me, really important. And uh, so I just continued doing it and noticed sort of this compounding effect incrementally. I just noticed the effect of it and it just became this thing that was just so like brushing my teeth, you know, and I, I knew the effect that it was having. I could see it very clearly. Wonderful. And then I continued working in business. It was um, just a, a tool that I had every day that I would do. And then, as you said, I sort of got to the point where I realized actually, you know, it was time for a change and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, I wanted to step away, you know, I was sort of in the midst of it. And I think sometimes when you are very full on and caught up in the doing, you need to at times in your life, just step out of that. And I made that decision. Um, and I sort of had a bit of time away from London where I was at that stage based. And I met up with Tom Knowles, my teacher who'd moved back to the U S he's American and he said, why don't you come and hang out here in Flagstaff, Arizona for a bit? And I did. And I trained to be a meditation teacher, came back to London in 2003 and started teaching. Uh, so, and then I met Michael, my partner, who's American. He's also a trained meditation teacher, learned with Tom. And we have, as you say, London as our base. Uh, and we're in New York every four or five weeks uh, teaching there as well. So still flying. <laughs> still flying, although the good news is, you know, I, I call meditation the ultimate jet lag buster because when you're flying, which is so demanding on the body, you know, human beings weren't really designed to be eating at 36,000 feet, you know, and uh, it's, a, it's a tough experience. And so what we recommend is that you meditate um, throughout the flight. And so what that does is it just it dissolves the fatigue in the system and then you arrive at your destination and you don't carry all of that in your system. So you're more able to sort of slot into the local time zone. You, you don't carry that tiredness with you. So it's a game changer for travel. I have to totally agree with that. I always meditate throughout flights because if nothing else, it's the only way to conquest the boredom half the time. Yeah. <laughs> and the last time I actually even had a flight attendant comment on the fact that I looked much better than most of the other travelers. Yeah. Um, I think it may also have something to do with the fact lack of consumption of alcohol, but I also, because <laughs> I don't, yeah. drink, you can't drink when you're meditating, but I yeah. think meditation is a super thing to do on an aeroplane. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a perfect sort of place where, you know, um, you know, it's purpose built for it, really. Uh, so, yeah, I highly recommend it. Great. So now you're, um, as you said, based in London and New York with the, with the two meditation centers, which I think is extraordinarily wonderful. Um, and this, interestingly enough, 
London Heal is all about mind, body, spirit medicine. And the one Mm -hmm. topic that I've actually been a little reticent to address is meditation, even though it's a keystone of of that kind of um, ideology, if you like, because it's such a complex topic. There are so many different types of meditation. And also these days we have a lot of what I call meditation light, which is mindfulness. So I was wondering before we get into the, the precise aspect of Vedic meditation, could you give us just a little bit of an overview of the, of the topic in general and, um, maybe sort of like the main branches that you're aware of? Because there's a lot of so many different things going on. And I think it's rather confusing for people mm. who are coming to the subject. They have no idea what meditation is. So could you maybe start off with the difference between meditation and mindfulness and maybe then the key points of, of Vedic meditation? Yes. I mean, I think I, I totally agree with you. I think there are many things out there in the mainstream that are called meditation that don't actually meet the bar in terms of what meditation is. And on one hand, it's great. You know, I've seen in the 16 years that I've been teaching a huge increase in the receptivity and the openness to this kind of knowledge. And with that, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because with that comes a potential for dilution of the knowledge and sort of the creeping in of these sort of, as you say, meditation light or things that perhaps don't actually deliver the, the, the real depth of experience that one can have when one knows what one's doing. So what I witness in the work that I am doing is that there is a, there are a lot of techniques which are, I would put under a category of being, um, involving some concentration. So there's the concentration sort of style, which is I'm going to focus on my breathing. I'm going to focus on the candle flame. I'm going to concentrate and try very hard to exclude thoughts, to reach a state of de-excitation in the mind through a lot of effort. Then there's another type of technique, which is more, contemplative so I'm contemplating um, a particular scene I'm being guided through a scene Uh, the mind is active but there's some sort of um, perhaps somebody involved in the process leading us through or we're just simply contemplating some idea some peace love happiness whatever it might be um, so there's, there are many different things. And now also with technology, you know, you have all these apps that, you know, people are trying, um, and much of that has mindfulness and mindfulness orientation. Mindfulness being mindful is, is fantastic. You know, to be mindful means to be present, so to, to be able to hold the present moment, um, my take on this is that mindfulness is a very important outcome of correct meditation. It's not a process in itself that will, through effort, lead one to be naturally present. (laughs) You know, it takes a lot of strain. And I think this is really sort of touching on the point that differentiates what I teach from other, all these other techniques is that what I what I teach is a technique that utilizes the nature of the mind rather than fighting it. Because if I say to you, 
you know, don't think about anything else. Just think about the candle flame or just think about the breathing. It doesn't work. You know, of course you're going to start thinking about that email you didn't send and that bill that needs to be paid and that noise that's out there and what am I going to have for lunch? And it becomes this battle and it's going against the nature of the mind. So when we understand that what the mind really wants is the mind wants that which it perceives to be charming, interesting, attractive. And when we can offer the mind that, (laughs) then we stop this battle and then the mind can naturally and spontaneously and automatically go to that more settled state without us trying to force our way there, which just leaves people feeling like they're a failure and, oh, meditation couldn't work for me, or it just it doesn't actually do the job. So we in Vedic meditation utilize an orienting device, a mantra, which has inbuilt into the structure of that sound the capacity to pull the mind into the subtle. It becomes automatically more refined and the mind loves that. The mind is just that super delicious and the mind, as it becomes fainter and softer and fainter, the mind goes with it. So as a meditator, I don't have to do anything. I don't sit there with my face scrunched up trying not to think about stuff or only thinking about a thing. I allow my mind to go with the mantra, experience that increased refinement and more and more charm that comes with that. And then my mind will settle down and it's no longer hard work. You know, I think this is one of the biggest myths that I come across is when I talk to people is, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. My, my mind is too busy. You know, I give these introductory talks and people say, well, have you ever had anybody that this won't work for? Because, you know, you just don't know my mind. I just never stop. You know, I am constantly thinking and I'm wound up. And in fact, absolutely, you can. If you can think, you can, you can do this. So I think it's about being able to settle down the mind in that natural, easy, spontaneous way. And of course, when we settle down the mind, then the body is achieving a level of very, very deep rest. Um, So not all meditations are the same. It is confusing. Uh, They're not all having the same effect. You know, we we look at what happens on um, brain imaging of people who are practicing concentration-based techniques versus, let's say, an automatic transcending technique like Vedic meditation or a contemplating technique, we see different effects on different brain signatures. So it's important that we start to break this down for people, and I think it's great that you are taking that on because it's, it's, it's a big area. And I think it's also great that people are moving in that direction, whatever that step they're taking. So maybe someone came to my talk yesterday, you know, she's been using some app um, and it's been delivering a certain experience for her. There's some deep sort of inner sense on her part that, well, this isn't quite it. It's a stepping stone. Now I want to learn how to do this properly. And I think that's fantastic. (laughs) If that's the outcome, if that has acted as, you know, the first rung on the ladder, brilliant. The, the, the watch out, I think, is if somebody has an experience of that, thinks that it's actually meditation, doesn't get the full 
benefit that they could, finds it a little bit difficult, doesn't find that it's a technique that they want to sit down and do every day and have a daily regular practice, then they say, well, I've tried meditation. That wasn't for me. And they kind of they've ticked that box and then they sort of they don't go any further. And that's, I think, the watch out. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that anybody who starts on this this path, it's it's a good path to start, but it's also important to keep on it. And uh, mm. if you if you haven't found the right thing for you, I also do think that perhaps there are different types of meditation suit different people. You know, it's I don't think it's a one size fits all. Do you agree with that? Um. Yes, I think. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think that, um, you know, it may be, you know, I'm, I'm always so supportive and positive when people find something that fits for, for them and works for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they've found a process that they enjoy and they find easy and pleasurable and it's delivering benefits, Fantastic. Fantastic. You know, nobody comes along and, and learns to meditate because they've got a spare, I don't know, 40 minutes in their day and everything's fantastic. And okay, you know, I'll meditate. We, we come to these kinds of techniques with some underlying sense of wanting to maximize our potential to experience more bliss, to experience less stress, to have better sleep, whatever that may be. And if we find something that is supporting us in that process and is delivering the benefits that we're looking for, I think fantastic, fantastic. And they're not all the same and they do have different, different effects. Uh, and, and we need to be aware of that. Great. So you mentioned that Vedic um, meditation involves the use of a mantra. When when people think of mantra meditation, immediately pops up the idea of TM, transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. How closely connected are the two types of meditation? Are they the same thing? Well, the t- the transcendental meditation technique is a proprietary term of the TM organization. Right. So, and I am not a part of that organization. So my teacher, Tom Knowles, uh, was historically a part of that organization. And then he became an independent teacher, I believe back in the 80s. Um, he had worked very closely with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Uh, he had been there in Rishikesh when, when the Beatles were there. Um, so when I met Tom, he had, he had left that organization. He was independent. So I personally have not had any direct connection or affiliation with them. Uh, I teach what Tom taught me to teach, and he's t- he has taught me to teach that which he was taught by his teacher. However, because I'm an independent teacher, I don't refer to that proprietary term. I'm independent. And so I go for that more broad, universal term of the Vedic meditation because this knowledge comes from the Veda. Veda is a Sanskrit term, V-E-D-A, which means knowledge, pure knowledge. And that is the source of where we get yoga and Ayurveda and all of these wonderful systems that really goes back 
thousands and thousands of years. We can't precisely date it, but we know that it's at least 5,000, possibly 10,000 years. So I am teaching that which Tom was taught and I'm passing that on in its purity, um, but I'm not, and I'm not a part of that organization. So I, I don't refer to it in that proprietary term. That wouldn't be right for me right. to use that term. Absolutely. A mantra, is that something that one is given or do you find it for yourself? Does it have to be in uh, Sanskrit or, or can it be in English? Is it, you know, um, for people who have no idea how, how that actually works within a meditation setup, can you talk yes. about that a little bit? Sure. So it's a very uh, precise procedure that um, involves the allocation of a sound to the individual uh, and that's not something that is a subjective process. That's a, that's something that happens as part of my training is to be able to allocate the right sound. And I use that word very specifically because the mantra is not a word. It's, it's a meaningless sound and it's the vibrational quality of that sound, which is so important. Now, there are many different types of mantras, you know, that you'll see Buddhist monks sitting chanting um, particular mantras for hours on end, uh, and that's having a very particular effect on their nervous system and on the environment. So different mantras work in different ways. The mantra that we use in Vedic meditation, the class of mantra, is used silently. So when I'm sitting there on the plane with my eyes closed, I am thinking that sound that I have been given by my teacher who has been trained in this. And this particular class of mantra that we use have a very specific effect. And number one quality is that that automatic self-refining quality that I was referring to earlier, that's what is the orienting device that pulls the mind away from all that busy, busy, busy thinking, thinking, and settle down and settle down and settle down. And so that's the primary purpose of that particular sound. So it's a very specific um process it's not complicated and the sound itself is not some really long difficult complicated sequence of sounds it's relatively simple and very easy for somebody to remember wonderful wonderful what is the process um of a so somebody comes to you and they're interested in meditation um you know i always hear as you as you said earlier, I can't. <laughs> it doesn't work for me. The other big one is I don't have time. The yeah. my answer to that is actually you don't have time not to. Um, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, if somebody was to come to you and and be um, interested in in starting and maintaining a meditative practice, what does that really entail? A very. Um particular process actually something that we adhere to very clearly because um, it's important that we uh, get the technique right in the beginning and then we build our understanding of how that works and why we're having the experiences that we are having when we sit down and close the eyes so the way that we work is that we offer the option for people to come and meet us and listen to us speak about the ins and outs of this and the benefits and what's involved. And that takes about an hour. And they come and they have that introductory session with us. 
And then if they feel inspired that, yes, this resonates, this is something I want to do, then they sign up for a course. And the course is a very particular structure. And we don't cut corners on this. It's very important. It happens over four days, four consecutive days. And in that process, the meditator will learn, the the new meditator will learn how to meditate. They'll learn their mantra and they'll learn the basics of how to use it in the very first session. Because then they have the experience and then we've got something to work with. Otherwise, it's just something that we're kind of theoretically talking about. And we want to get down to business straight away. Once they have that experience, then we build their intellectual understanding about how it works. So you come out of those four days with a practice that you can do and you know how to integrate it into your life. And you understand why you're having thoughts or why you're having the experiences that you're having in the, the 20 minutes. That's how long we meditate. I come out of that with both the experiential knowledge and the theoretical knowledge. And that's complete knowledge. We want both. And then we give a lot of support. You know, it's, it's an interesting mix. Somebody comes out of that process self-sufficient. They've got a tool for life and we are there for them on that journey. So we have regular follow-up. We offer free meditation sessions. They can come along. And the other night I had 60 people in the room meditating, um, old students of ours who want to sort of come back in and plug into the mothership, as it were, um, <laughs> ask questions, you know, meditate in a group. You know, that's a very, very powerful experience to sit in a room with 60 people who are, settling down their nervous system in that way it's uh it enhances one's experience and it's very very good for the collective so so the process is really enjoyable it's easy it's not that we have to have any prior experience um we don't even need to believe in in the fact that it might work you know we don't it's it's just you know we might even not be quite sure that it could work and what we find is you know as always nature knows best how to organize it the knowledge the power of the knowledge will ensure that whatever the person needs in their meditation that'll happen and and they'll notice changes very very quickly and i think this is another thing you know people say well how long am i gonna have to do this before i notice a change you know is it like six months or, and, and the wonderful thing about this is, you know, on those first four days, you're going to start to feel some things, you know, maybe interestingly, you're going to notice a lot of tiredness coming out of your system. Very, very common. You know, this is this sort of epidemic of fatigue that is there in the collective right now. You know, people are tired and what happens in meditation, when we start to re- release the, the stress and the excitation is that what's revealed is the true state of fatigue in the nervous system. And I would say the, one of the most common initial side effects is that people feel, feel that, you know, not in a way that they can't handle, but they just feel a bit, oh my gosh, I'm, I really need to get to bed. One of my students the other day, she was like, I went to bed at 7.15, you know, and she said, I've never done that, you know. Um, She said, I was just so tired. She woke up, felt great, meditated, away she goes, you know. But there's the body, you know, it's recalibrating and it's it's coming back into balance. Um, So, yeah, that's how we do it. 
Sounds great. Um, is there an optimal time to meditate? Like I always choose to do it first thing in the morning because I find that if you allow the day to take mm. your mind over, it's very difficult to push it out of the way. So I like to get going before that starts. Um, yes, how, I agree. I is, agree. Is that um, the practice you use too? Yeah, we would recommend that we start our day with, well, my day doesn't officially start until I've done a few things. And one of them is meditate. <laughs> um, so I don't get onto my emails. I don't look at my Instagram. I don't do any of that. Um, I don't eat. I don't, you know, all that until I've done my meditation because life crowds in, as you say, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, it's just, there's always something else to do. Um, and, and then, and that's 20 minutes with this technique. 20 minutes and you know people when I first heard that when I went along to the intro talk and I heard it was 20 minutes twice a day I was like what where am I going to get 40 minutes in my already jam-packed day and it comes back to your point about people not feeling like they're going to be able to fit this in um interestingly what I found and what I see time and time again with its students is that when you have that energy and that clarity and that equanimity Everything that you do after meditation is going to be more effective. It's like you, you do, you're more focused, you're clearer. And I just found my productivity levels went way up. I gained time as a result of investing that time. And, it, and you know, to your point, you know, I, I totally agree. You know, if someone says I'm too busy to meditate, I'm like, really? What are you doing? You know, what what is it that is? You know, I'd be fascinated to know. Um, now in our technique, we, we recommend that you then do another 20 minutes late afternoon, early evening before the evening meal. Ideally, we don't, uh, in our practice recommend that you meditate too late at night. So it's not a getting to sleep tool in the sense that you're going to, um, sort of lie down in bed and then do your second meditation because what will happen is either you'll fall asleep, but probably more so over time is that you'll come out of that meditation and you'll be awake and you'll have all these great ideas and it's two in the morning. You've got no one to tell them to, you know, it, meditation is for action. It's giving us the capacity to do more. And uh, so we don't want to meditate too late at night. It'll interrupt our sleep. Wonderful. You've talked a lot about some of the benefits. Can we just go through those as a shopping list? Um, what, yeah. <laughs> what are the, I mean, why, why do this? Yeah, I think it's really important. If we can't answer that, you know, it's, it's the so what, you know, this all sounds mm -hmm. lovely. Got this nice sound. I settle down, you know, lovely, lovely. But why? You know, what's it going to do for me? So the first thing is that meditation is going to deliver a very deep level of rest in the mind body and the physiology and what that's going to do is allow you to build up a reservoir of energy so energy levels increase and we clear out the legacy the previous the the old tiredness that we're holding and sleep becomes um more effective because when two profound doses of meditation each day of deep rest it takes the pressure off sleep so people find that this really helps in terms of their ability to get to sleep or if they wake up at three in the morning and the mind is racing they can settle back down but that actually just evens out over time so energy levels improve sleep is a big one uh, the other thing that happens when we when we rest and when we experience this is that we the body stops 
producing stress chemistry. There's a particular cocktail of chemicals that the body produces from the adrenal glands, the norepinephrine and the cortisol. When we're, you know, wound up and we're in that overexcitory state, that is something that the body produces to sustain that. What we see in meditators is that that stress chemistry just shuts down and the body starts to produce its own endogenous, i.e. produce from within cocktail of biochemistry, which is more associated with feelings of lightness and positivity and well-being, normalization of dopamine levels and serotonin and all of these things that a body actually has the capacity to um, produce. And, and so this leads to uh, a significant shift. Rather than the body holding a lot of stress, meditation is very, very effective in releasing that. And so anxiety levels settle down. Um, you know, that just that sort of overreactive sense that you know when we're in that sort of fight flight mode whether we know it or not we get a bit snappy we get a bit reactive we end up probably doing something that's actually not so appropriate in the moment (laughs) you know this is what stress does and it's very unhealthy for us to be stressed because it suppresses the immune system it ages us rapidly it makes us unwell and, and we never make our best decisions when we're tired and cranky this won't happen so by clearing all of that out we, we rebalance the system and so then the immune system is functioning. We're not in that sort of fight-flight mode uh, in that overexcited state all the time. So we do see a slowing down in the aging process. We see an increase in um, the, the – what happens is that there's a change in the brain functioning. And what we witness in the research is that um, – the certain parts of the brain are particularly enlivened, particularly this prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of the brain, the CEO of the brain. And this is particularly important when we want to make good decisions. Now, what we know is that when someone is tired and stressed, that part of the brain sort of goes offline. The reverse happens in meditation. This is highly activated. And and that's good because we want to be engaging with that higher functioning of the human nervous system Uh, we see a lot of bihemispheric coherence in terms of the left and the right hemisphere of the brain which is associated with more moments of peak creativity so memory improves concentration improves learning ability improves um so lots of different effects i see a lot of um impact in terms of uh migraines asthma because all of that is the constriction and the tightness that comes with that living in that fight flight sort of elevated state and uh meditation will help with that significantly so it's a long list it's a very long list of benefits and i think you know importantly just a sense of feeling grounded and and calm and and not constantly sort of on the back foot and reactive um which is what I witness many people are are experiencing in their day-to-day life and not enjoying themselves, you know. Quite, quite. So a really long list of of enormous benefits. It's uh, it's amazing that not everybody's doing it and everybody should, Um, which sort of actually leads me right on to the next question because we've talked about this a little bit. Um, But why do you think meditation has become 
it's it's almost mainstream. I mean, I, I know when I first started meditating very many years ago, I, I didn't do it very consistently for a long time. But I mean, that, you know, you were, as you said at the beginning, you know, that was sort of like leather sandals and weirdo. And um, and now, you know, CEOs are doing it. People, everybody's doing yeah. it. You know? um, yeah. Why do you think that is? Why, what's, what's helped this acceptance? Is it because it's just so effective or what do you think it is? I think it's a really good question. I mean, I think there's a lot of factors going on. I think there is more evidence, more science behind it. And we live in an age where, particularly in the West, where perhaps these, the spiritual dimension is not as strong as it is in other parts of the world, but there's certainly an appreciation and um, a reassurance that comes from scientifically validated uh you know give me some data tell me what this is doing measure this and i think we're at a stage now where you know for someone to say well meditation doesn't offer positive benefits you know we we can we can prove that it does and that's not sort of a subjective thing of me just talking about my experience of sitting down every day we know the effects of this and I think that's that's been reassuring. I think we're in an age where the levels of stress uh, and fear and fatigue are so kind of prevalent, and I think people are searching. They're all seeking. Everyone's seeking, you know. And uh, and so there's there's a there's a need uh, there. Uh, the consciousnesses of waking up to the fact that some of these things that perhaps people have been trying um, are not delivering sustainable benefits. And so there's this sort of sense, well, what else? And, I, you know, there's a – very often I witness this in my students, there's sort of a sense of I just know that this is the direction. I don't know anything about it, but I just have this sort of deep sense that, I need to slow down. I need to kind of take my attention away from all of this external achieving and doing and thing and just give myself a little bit of peace and downtime. And, and I think there's also, you know, there's been some high profile people who have been taking this up and we live in the age of celebrity. And so, you know, if such and such is doing it, oh, okay. You know, that the power of that, um, you know, and the other day I was, giving a talk and um, 20 people in the room and I think five of them had come because they had heard about this technique via somebody talking about it on a podcast just like this and so technology is helping in in that way you know the work that you're doing is making this sort of stuff accessible to people so number of different things the need of the time certainly um the fact that we've got evidence, we know what this does. We also know that some of these other things are not working. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's that human, basic, basic human desire to experience happiness. <laughs> and we know that, you know, plenty of evidence that acquiring your way to happiness is going to, or fulfillment is going to get, might give you momentary sort of surges of happiness, but it's not going to give you that um, sustainable inner peace and balance and fulfillment that people are looking for. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. You know, it's the fact that these techniques have stood the test of time 
you know, they are ancient. And here we are in this modern age, they're highly relevant. And I think that says something to the power of what's going on, you know. It's um, very powerful. Absolutely. One word that you kind of let drop there, but I actually think is a really important word, is spirituality. Um, Mm. I think in our very modern, as you said, science-driven, I'm a scientist myself, um, science-driven word, we we almost have a bit of a problem kind of taking that word into our mouths and chewing it and actually saying it out loud because it's, uh, it's, you know, it's almost embarrassing. But I definitely have the feeling that I think a lot of people are noticing that there's just something missing in their lives yeah. and, and they're yeah. looking for it. How, what, what is the spiritual component of, of the kind of meditation you teach? Where, where does that journey go and how far can somebody actually take it? I mean, there's a lot going on in the personal development world these days of expanding consciousness in this way, you know, that way and the other. But this kind of spiritual component, where, where does that how does that fit in with all of these teachings and where can that journey go? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think, as you say, it's a loaded term. Mm-hmm. Um, it has all sorts of different connotations for, for people, often of a, a religious sort of orientation. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. I'm talking about cult or simply that, you know, I'm going to have to, believe in something or I'm going to have to change my life in some way. Um, there's some philosophy behind this. So what I'm very clear about is that if you want to learn this technique to learn to meditate, to de-excite the mind and then the body and experience this deep rest, which is many times deeper than sleep, you don't have to change your life in any way. You don't have to stop drinking your flat white. You don't have to start, you know, eating more broccoli. You don't have to shave your head. You don't have to do anything. Simply sit in the chair, close the eyes and do it. And these changes will happen. And so that on a sort of very um, kind of one would say, I guess, a surface level of, of, of life, if we're not sort of going too deep in terms of the spiritual aspect, it's, it's like a mechanical technique. It's going to work and it's going to work no matter what your uh, personal philosophies are, what your religion is, what your belief systems are. It is universal knowledge. We are beings, we're human beings, and we need to get out of this thinking, doing loop and, and have an experience of that least excited state. And that's what meditation will do. Now, my definition of spiritual is what is your spirit? Your spirit is your essence. It's the basis of who you are. Now, what we know from quantum field theory is that the basis of everything in the universe is energy, consciousness. Everything is at its most discrete level is is energy. And that consciousness, that least excited state of consciousness is what we are settling down and stabilizing when we experience Vedic meditation every time we sit down and close the eyes. So in that sense, absolutely it's spiritual. Not spiritual because I've had to adopt a belief system or change my lifestyle anyway, but it's coming back to my essence, my core, the fundamentals of who I am as a human being. 
Yes, in that sense, it's spiritual. Now, as people progress with this knowledge, what I witness is that many of them want to develop that. They want to expand that knowledge. They want to sort of understand more about the complementary aspects of this like Ayurveda or they want to, you know, it's going to bring about an opening up of one's awareness. One's consciousness is going to expand and that will naturally um, lead us to a state of being perhaps open to some of these things. But it's not a prerequisite. You don't have to do anything different other than sit down and, you know, close those eyes. So, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's uh, certainly something that I think can trip people up a little bit. And uh, we just need to get clear about what we mean by spiritual. It's just such a, a misused term. I think that's one of the nicest and, and cleanest <laughs> explanations or descriptions of it that I've ever heard. I think I may have to steal that. No, it's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. And um, the one thing I've discovered through through meditation is also that one gets so much more in tune with intuition with who you are you know um for me that's also a spiritual experience could you just talk a little bit about that yes I love this topic I I was talking about this I gave a lecture on Monday night to our students and um yeah I think it's such an important thing because our society is so geared up to all this intellectual analysis and working everything out and the intellect's role in making decisions and, you know, or shall I, you know, sign that contract or should I sign that contract? Should I work there or should I do that? Should I kiss him or should I kiss him? Or, you know, it's, we're constantly making decisions in our life, you know, and from a very early age, you know, I have a five-year-old and she's starting this into the school system and I can see that there's, and I've experienced this, I know this firsthand, you know, and going through the business world, you know, what is rewarded and what is encouraged is that we make decisions based on evidence, based on concentration and control and memory and focus and, and, and that success is commensurate with effort and I've got to work it out and I've got to kind of analyze it and I've got to try and forecast. And, and actually when someone comes along and learns to meditate with me, that's the bit that I'm undoing because what I'm asking them to do is to let go of all of that intellectual gymnastics and actually settle down and allow, as I said earlier, nature to take over. And what, what we witness with this is that, you know, our intuition becomes very, very strong, very reliable, that inner voice, that inner wisdom that is there however it gets it becomes um, masked by all of this excitation and and the dullness that comes with fatigue and we don't trust it and we're not encouraged to trust it you know we're not rewarded on oh okay Julian you just do whatever you think with you know that because basically you know nobody said to me in business oh you just trust your gut you know you you know I had to produce figures I had to back it all up with the numbers you know, it was all very analytical and, and, you know, we've all been in situations in our life where we've made decisions that we had a gut feeling about it and that, but we overrode it with our intellect and we tried to sort of 
analyze it and come up with some sort of reasoning. And it kind of comes back to, to get us later on. I remember this when I was in business and I was recruiting. I had a feeling about the person I knew with very, very quickly. But then my intellect, you know, I needed people. So, right, no, we'll make it work, you know. And then a period of time would pass and, it, you know, I would be, my gut feel was right. Um, now, I think, can we trust that voice? Can we hear it? Uh, is it available to us? That's really the question. It's not, is it there? It's just what's masking it, what's covering it. And what I witness in this practice of learning a technique like meditation is that it's like a perceptual sharpener. You know, your sense of sight, your sense of taste, touch, smell, hearing become sharper. They become more refined. They, your perceptual acuity goes up. And those five senses that is the culmination, bringing all that together. That is your sixth sense. That is your fine level of feeling. That is your gut feel. And we need to honor it and we need to be able to trust it. And so we need to do the, the, the refinement of the nervous system to be able to enliven that and have access to that because that is where we want to be stationed. That's what we want. We want to be able to trust that in a sense, not what some fashion magazine says or what somebody else says, but actually to know what's right for you. I love it. And Anayaveda, there's this great saying. It says, we don't say no as an N-O. We say no as in K-N-O-W. No. Know what's right for you. And what's right for you could be completely different to the next person. Or what's right for you in the middle of August could be completely different for you in the middle of January, you know, know and be able to, to tap in and trust that and connect with that wisdom. And that's very hard to do when you're stressed and tired. So we've got to clear away the blockages. We've got to get away from, they get that obstruction out of the way. And what I see in the work that I'm doing is it really does enliven the reliability of that inner voice. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. I echo that 100%. Um, yeah. I think, I think what you said was really, really important there that, that we're also very much encouraged not to trust this because it's not yeah. scientific. Um, and I think it's also a little naive to assume that only intellectual knowledge is, is the basis of our decision making. I mean, you talked about five senses, but maybe there's a whole lot more. I mean, we're just yeah. beginning to realize on what kind of levels our bodies and minds are being able to perceive information. Um, you know, Absolutely. light, heat, energy, all sorts of things. And I agree. Absolutely. I think once, once we start being able to measure it, <laughs> people will start to believe it. Yeah. I love the work that you're doing, Gillian, and I really honor and thank you for it because I think it's so important to have so many um, people such as yourselves who dedicate your lives to helping other people find their way to, to master and maximize happiness and joy in life. Um, I think it also makes the world a better place. So thank you. Thank you yeah, very much. Thank you. Um, and thank you for taking the time to come and talk to me today. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. It was, the pleasure was all mine. I always have three little questions that I like to ask my guests. The last one for you is going to be just a walk in the park. But um, <laughs> so I talked about mind, body, spirit, and I like to embody that in the idea of health, happiness, and serenity. Um, so yeah. the word health, what does that actually mean for you? How do you define that word? Balance, balance, and and enthusiasm. 
enthusiasm, a feeling of, um, yeah, enthusiasm for life, joy. Life is bliss. <laughs> That's a wonderful definition, which leads very nicely on to happiness. So what does, what does Gillian do to get happy? What sort of things make you happy? Well, you know, I, I feel there's, there are things that, I guess in the work that I'm doing, what I am feeling more and more in my life is the thing that brings me the most fulfillment and joy is being able to meet the needs of other people. I think, you know, there's so much in, in this sort of acquisitive mode of gaining happiness that, you know, that there's internal need and I'm, I'm needy and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to make myself happier. I'm going to go on that holiday. I'm going to get those shoes. I'm going to date that guy, whatever it is, and then I'll be happy. And what I have found in my own personal journey is that when I am able to access that inner reservoir of balance and peace and fulfillment, that becomes more and more stable and that need for acquiring it from external goes away. Now, I like holidays. I like, you know, having experiences. I'm not saying that, you know, it turns you into somebody that doesn't want to experience all of the full spectrum of that. I think it's increasingly what I notice, the things that give me the deepest satisfaction are the things that are going to make a difference for other people. So for me to teach meditation is such a you know, I genuinely mean this. It's such a, a joy. It's such, it doesn't feel like work because it brings so much, so much uh, fulfillment, you know, for me. And, and I feel like, yes, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Um, so, yeah, I think a difference between what we understand about happiness and fulfillment. I hear that more and more from so many people and I've so much experienced it myself that actually um, giving back, is sometimes the biggest gift, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And so here's the easy one, serenity. <laughs> You're a master <laughs> of serenity with, with, you know, usually at this point I ask people what kind of practices, you know, I think that's kind of clear what practice that you use for serenity. But perhaps... Tell me a little bit about how, when you're not meditating, what points in your day? Is it something that you pursue um, throughout your day to try and find mm. little points where you can turn the noise down and just savor the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think, of course, there's that, you know, stable baseline practice there. And uh, I think there's what I find myself really putting my attention on and noticing is light. So, you know, it's a very beautiful, we're in the autumn right now and the light is very sort of thick and dusky and I look at the way the colours are changing and sort of the there's a celestial quality to that and I just find myself connecting with that, that very subtle level. So I, I really look for that and I live in, in a very big bustling city and it's there. It's absolutely there. And remember, I have a five-year-old. And, you know, if we want to talk about present moment awareness, there's there's the present moment awareness. You know, she's very much, mummy, look at these leaves, look at these. So, you know, that's always a great way to come back to the here and the now. And I think that's the thing that feels lovely. And I think also, you know, some Ayurvedic practices that I have, and we can talk about that another time, but those sorts of things are really helpful 
in just being able to ensure that there's balance in, in my system and there's a baseline of equanimity there. Wonderful. And we definitely will talk about that another time. If you would give me, a, give, give me another few minutes of, of your precious time on another time, okay. then we'd, I'd love to go into that topic of Ayurveda because I think it's something that I certainly don't know enough about and I think our listeners would love to know more about. Oh, oh I'd love that. So on that note, Gillian, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and uh, keep doing this wonderful work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And you too. And uh, it's been such a pleasure for me. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that uh, episode as much as I did with Gillian and had a little perhaps introduction or a deepening of your knowledge about Vedic meditation and perhaps how that might be the way for you to go and start your meditation practice. I can only highly encourage that. It's completely changed my life and I know it changed the life of a lot of other people who started to actually adopt a meditative practice. We'll have the links to um, the London Meditation Centre in the show notes, so please go and take a look there. And as Gillian pointed out, they regularly have talks and presentations. So even if you just want to go and find out before you actually even commit, that's a perfect opportunity to do that. As always, we ask you to please rate and review us on iTunes. Your support is extremely important to us and get this message out there to people who really, really need it. Tell all your friends and please feel free and you are highly encouraged, in fact, to share any posts that we have on social media on your own channels because this is all about spreading really important information to people who could really benefit from it, helping their lives and empowering you and them to take back control of your health care, your welfare, and make you a healthy, happy, and serene person. And of course, on that note, I would always encourage you to sign up to LondonHeal.com, become a London Heal Insider, and have exclusive access to extended notes from the shows so that you can have all of the details right in front of you without having to take pen and paper or type or any other kind of methods all done for you. That just leaves me, as I every week, to wish you, as always, health, happiness and serenity. <laughs>